Good morning. My name is Steve, and uh, welcome. I'm the lead pastor here, and we are starting a new sermon series this morning, aptly called Resurrection. Uh, we're going to be kind of working through this over the course of our Easter season. So, welcome, and uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's go over to Luke chapter 22. That's where we're going this morning, Luke 22. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. And in our Bibles, you're going to be going over to page 882. 882. Um, but Luke 22. While you're flipping over there, I just want to remind you, next Sunday is our Easter service. It is uh, Resurrection Sunday, which means that this Friday is Good Friday, uh, which is a, um, a bit of an oxymoron, right? We call it Good Friday, even though it was the day on which Christ was crucified. Um, but in that suffering, we find our healing. and in, in that sacrifice, we find our forgiveness. And, and so this Friday, we invite you out. Join us um, at 7 o'clock. We're, we're going to be having a service in here. It'll last just under an hour of, of worship, uh, music, and, and sitting in the Word. And um, it, it's a great way to help prepare your heart for Easter Sunday. Um, to enter into the sorrow uh, helps you enter into the joy. And so I'm going to encourage, if you can, because it's, uh, Easter's a busy time, right? We fill it with family, we fill it with activities, and, and, and that's all wonderful. But, but um, I think that we often miss uh, a lot of the spiritual depth that comes with this season. Now, after our Good Friday service, we are going to be showing um, the passion of the Christ. And uh, that's going to be an optional thing if you were going to have our service, share communion, and and uh, those who want to leave can leave at that point. Those who want to stay are going to be able to stay. And, and uh, the reason we do this really is um, I think a lot of times we just get really, really comfortable uh, talking about the cross. We get really, really comfortable just talking about um, Jesus dying, and, and uh, we get used to the gospel story. And in a sense, we become desensitized to what would have been a very real um, visceral experience for anyone who read the New Testament texts because they lived in that culture. They lived at that time. They saw firsthand what these things were like and what they meant. And, and for us at this distance, I think a lot of times uh, it's easy for us to, um, I don't know, get obsessed with pastel colors and eggs and Easter bunnies and, and not really um, allow this to this text and this, so the, the 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 Passion of the Christ is is in visual format, a retelling of the Passion Week, and um, it's heavy. So I'm going to let you know it is. We're going to be showing the unedited full version, and and so it's it's uh, wouldn't necessarily call it appropriate for kids because um, uh, it's pretty brutal. But um, if you want to join us for that, we'll be showing that on Friday night. So it's going to be a night to prepare our hearts uh, for the celebration of the resurrection by entering into the sorrow of the cross. And, uh, and that means that this Sunday, today, is Palm Sunday. Uh, Palm Sunday, a couple thousand years ago, is the Sunday Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And, uh, and in riding in, man, the crowds came out and greeted them. They, they laid palm branches down on the road. They sang Hosanna to God in the highest. They, they, they were really just singing the praises of their king. And, and Jesus was entering like this great uh, conquering hero. But in five days, the voices that we're singing out in joy are going to be shouting out in murder. By the end of the week, he will be led out like a criminal, even though he was brought in like a king. And Peter, the boldest of the disciples, uh, is going to end this week uh, in the cowardice of failure and shame. It's a rough week. But I think there's a lot for us to learn here. It's a little bit like my third grade trip on a school bus. Uh, it all starts uh, with me and my mom. We go way back. And uh, we, we moved to a new town, and I was having difficulty making friends. And I wasn't exactly sure whose plan it was, but it sure seemed like a great idea to third grade me. Um, so I took a bag of candy with me onto the school bus. And uh, decided that was my plan. That's how I was going to make friends. I was going to give out candy to anybody who would be my friend. And it worked spectacularly. I was the most popular guy on the bus for seven minutes. <laughs> seven minutes is exactly how long it took for me to give away all my candy. And then it failed spectacularly. All those people who were my new friends... Um, 
Well, when the candy ran out, I, I got a very small taste of what middle school would be like. Um, who knew kids could be so cruel, right? That, that when the candy ran out, uh, so did all of the warmth and affection, and then began the mocking and the abuse, um, right? Who would have guessed that they would have only pretended to like me to get candy? Here's the thing, you guys. It was a brilliant plan, but it failed at one point. It didn't take into account human nature. And as a result, uh, it, it failed spectacularly. You guys, this is like Palm Sunday. This is like Peter himself. This is like, honestly, the rest of life. We discover over and over and over again that anything we build has a fatal flaw in it. And as a result, we sow the seeds of our own destruction. We... we walk a path of hope, but we are in that process setting ourselves up continually for disappointment. Here's the thing, we don't need better lives. We need new lives. We don't need a better society, we need a new humanity. We don't need um, a reclamation project, we need resurrection. So we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at the events of Holy Week, and we're going to do it specifically through the eyes of Peter. That's kind of where we're going with this. I want to approach Holy Week through the experiences and the eyes of Peter to help us re-enter into this story and see it from a new perspective. Because even as Jesus was going to the cross to die and rise again, Peter himself was going through his own death and resurrection kind of experience uh, simultaneously. So our passage this morning takes place on Maundy Thursday. Uh, That is this coming Thursday. So Palm Sunday, he comes in, it's all celebratory. Uh, Thursday is the day of the Last Supper. Thursday, Jesus meets with his disciples, shares a meal, uh, and then they go out into the garden to pray. And it's that night that Judas leads um, the soldiers into the garden. Judas betrays Jesus and Peter betrays his own heart. So let's take a look at our text. We're looking at Luke chapter 22. We're going to look at verses 31 through 34, and then 47 through 62. Let's start in 31. Simon, Simon, and this is Jesus speaking to Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Drop down to 47. When he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The word of the Lord. All right, I want to talk a little bit about Peter. I want to kind of set the stage because we're obviously getting a single scene and a powerful and important scene with Peter, but, but I want to kind of set the stage about who Peter is. Peter, Peter was one of the three. 
And what I mean by that is, is he was in the inner circle with Jesus, right? P- Jesus had his 12 disciples, and he had his 72 disciples, and he had his hundreds of followers. But, but in the 12, he, he had three, Peter, James, and John. And those three were, were given unique and powerful access to Jesus. He often invited them in to unique experiences, to, to conversations, to things that, that were really, really tight. And so he was, he was in that inner circle, and he was known for being bold and daring. That was the character. I mean, to the point of being reckless and impulsive. We see that Jesus was the first to confess that Jesus was, or Peter was the first to confess that Jesus was the Christ. Right? When all the disciples are, are, are following, it, it is, it's Peter who, who first declares, Jesus, we believe you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus said on this statement, on this declaration, I will build my church. Right? He, he was the first to confess Jesus is the Christ. He, he was the only disciple to walk on water. Right? The, the disciples were sent out ahead of Jesus across the Sea of Galilee, and they're, they're crossing the sea at night, and a storm comes up. And the storms on that sea can be crazy, and, and they were afraid for their lives. The wind was blowing, the, the, the waves were up, there was water in the air. And then they look out over the side of the boat, and they see someone walking toward them across the surface of the water. And, and the disciples, I think, make the reasonable assumption that this is weird, Right? They're like, man, that's a ghost walking toward us. And, and Peter's like, I know what I'll do. I know how to test this situation. He's like, hey, if you're Jesus, command me to walk on the water. I don't know why he thought that was a good idea. But he did. And Jesus is like, all right, Peter, come on. So he stepped out of the boat and walked on water. Well, until he got distracted by the actual waves and the wind and was like, what the heck? And then he started sinking and Jesus had to come and rescue him. But still... He was the only one, man, who, who stepped out of that boat, right? You got to know the other disciples were, were amazed at his stupidity and impressed with his boldness. And I'm guessing there wasn't one of them that, that didn't later regret not taking that step with him. Just for that short experience of, you know what I'm saying? Like, that was Peter. He was one of the witnesses to the transfiguration. Being part of the three, Peter, James, and John, Jesus went up to the top of the mountain and he invited the three with him gets to the top of the mountain, and, and all of a sudden, he, he's transfigured in front of them. He starts glowing, like bright white, like crazy transformation. And, and suddenly, there's two people. They're standing with him, talking with him, right? It's Moses and Elijah, right? Jesus, Moses, and Elijah sitting there having a conversation. I have no idea what they were talking about. I wish I could have heard. And I'm sure James and John would have liked to have heard as well, but Peter couldn't stay quiet. Peter's like, hey, it's a good thing we're here because... I could build you some tents. Like, literally, that's what he says, right? And, and the gospel writer says this, for he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. When you're terrified and don't know what to say, it's always a good idea to, to suggest building tents, right? That, that was his solution in that, in that moment, right? And Jesus doesn't even respond. I love it. There's a cloud that comes down from heaven and a voice that speaks up and says, hey, this is my beloved son, listen to him. I mean, that's, that's God's response to Peter, right? But it's Peter, right? At the Last Supper, Jesus puts on the servant's towel, shocks everybody in the room. The lowest servant is one that washed the feet. Jesus puts on the servant towel and he starts working his way around the table, washing his disciples' feet. And he, he comes to Peter and, and Peter looks at him and he's like, uh-uh, not me. You're, you're Jesus the Messiah. You're Jesus the Christ. You're, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus is like, Peter, dude, come on, man. If I don't wash you, you have no part in me. Peter's like, without hesitation, like, okay, then. Well, then wash my head and wash my hands. And come on, man, give me a full body bath. And Jesus is like, chill, dude. <laughs> chill. Like, for real, I just need to wash your feet, right? But that's, that's Peter. When Jesus was betrayed, the, the text we read um, we read about a guy, like all the disciples are like, hey, should we fight? And one guy pulls a sword and goes at it. That was Peter. We find out from the other gospel writers that that was Peter, right? Peter was packing, and, uh, and he, was, he was ready. He was going to defend Jesus. And, uh, and in the chaos and in the darkness, man, he, doesn't, he ends up attacking a servant, not even a soldier. 
and, and it's so bad, he just cuts off the dude's ear. Like, that's, he's, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's a fisherman. He's not a fighter. Um, but he just couldn't help himself, right? He clearly didn't pay enough attention in his sword safety classes when he was getting his conceal and carry permit. But, but, but he was the guy who had to do something. All the other guys are standing around. Should we defend him? Should we, should we fight? Should we? And Peter, man, he's not going to talk about it. He pulls his sword and and Jesus is like, all right, it's Peter again. Stop, put it away. Peter, it's always a bad thing, man. You, the church doesn't have the sword. The government does. It's always a bad thing when the church tries to take up the sword. You just put that away, man, because you're just going to do more harm than good. Come here, Malchus. Come here. Let me heal your ear. Jesus comes and fixes the damage right here. Okay, you got your ear back. Now you can arrest me. Right? So he's, he's always kind of coming behind and cleaning up after, after Peter. But, but here's the thing, man. We can make fun of Peter, but you've got to admire his boldness. Right? As much as we might find him impulsive and, and funny, man, Jesus loved this guy. Jesus loved this guy. I think Jesus loves bold and foolish faith. I think Jesus loves the kind of faith that, that seems reckless to the people that don't have it. The kind of faith that actually takes him at his word. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, not like, oh yeah, I believe it, kinda. But like the kind of faith that's like, no, he said it. I'm in, man. Like it is bold, it is reckless, it seems crazy to the people who don't have it. But, but Peter was willing to put Jesus to the test. You said this is true, I'm going to put you to the test. And Jesus is like, I love it. I love it. That's bold faith. There's actually much here to admire in Peter. There's much here to emulate. So why did the night end so badly for him? Why, when he's the boldest of the disciples, did he have the most inglorious end? They all betrayed Jesus that night. They all ran off into the darkness. But, but all four gospel writers account for this story in detail. The shame of Peter, the exposure of his cowardice. Why, why Peter? I mean, why the whole Palm Sunday thing, right? Why, when people were so excited, singing, Hosanna to, to, to God in the highest and throwing down palm leaves and singing songs of victory, why, why when they're so full of hope and, and so eager that Jesus would be the delivering king who would come in and usher in this, this kingdom of God, and, and why did it end so badly? Like third grade kids when the candy ran out. Their praise turned to vicious cries of murder. Why? What happened? Well, let's say at the outset, very clearly, that Jesus himself was never surprised by this stuff. Jesus wasn't impressed with the praise of, of Palm Sunday, and Jesus wasn't impressed with the bravado of Peter. He, he had already predicted that he himself would, would be betrayed, that he would be handed over to the authorities, that he would be killed. He had already predicted it. He knew it, right? And, and he even predicted for Peter what was going to happen, right? He's like, hey, Peter, man, this is going to be a rough night for you. I'm, let me prepare you, right? So take a look at verses 31 through 34, just to remind you. Simon, Simon, and I love the way he starts off. He uses that, that intimate personal name, repeats it twice. <laughs> like, oh, Simon, 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 right? There's a, there's a tenderness to this. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And when you have turned again, I love that. Simon, you're going to turn away. That's a given. I already know it. You're going you're gonna to reject me. You're going to abandon me. You're going to turn against me. You're, you're going to turn away. But, but then, I just want to let you know, you're going to turn back. You're going to have a bad night. But it's going to lead to a good thing. And when it does, I'm telling you now, I'm going to give you a mission coming out of this. You're, you're going to have a job to do. You're going you're to need to strengthen your brothers. So Jesus is reaching out to him tenderly to help prepare him for what's coming, to kind of set him up, man, to kind of bolster him. And all Peter can hear is, you're going to fail. That's all he can hear. And so that's what he responds to. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. 
Don't tell me I'm going to fail. Don't tell me I'm going to turn away. I'm ready to die. Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So this story is, is told again in all four Gospels. Matthew and Mark give us a little bit more context. Matthew and Mark tell us that, that this conversation actually took place in a broader conversation where Jesus was preparing his whole disciples, all, the whole group, for what was coming. And, and he was telling the men, the shepherd's going to be struck and the sheep are going to be scattered. So something's going to happen to me tonight and all you guys are going to run away. And, and Peter was the one who prompted this further discussion by, by saying, look, they may all run away, but not me. Right? They might be cowards, but, but not me. Jesus is like, dude, you're going to deny me three times. And, and we learn a little bit more detail. He said specifically, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. In the other Gospels, it's kind of funny at the end of this conversation, Peter walks away still muttering, yeah, not me. Not me. That's not, that's not going to happen with me. It makes it all the more striking when it does. That much more surprising, even to Peter, right? It took him off guard. He was, he was so surprised by the events of that night. He didn't see this coming. He didn't know the betrayal was going to happen. It took him so by surprise and, and knocked him so off balance that even as he was going through the very thing Jesus predicted, he didn't even notice it, right? He wasn't even present enough to see it. He couldn't see himself. And so as a result, he, he kind of just discovered it at the end, right? He, after, after all the chaos and, and after the, the, the scuffle and, and, and in the darkness, all the disciples scattered, Peter wanted to run, but he couldn't bring himself to run, and so he just followed at a distance, and, and they took Jesus to the high priest's house, and, and, and people were gathering in the courtyard around a charcoal fire. It was very cold, and, and so Peter kind of wanders up a little bit later and comes to the fire to, to warn him, warm himself. And then a servant girl asks a very innocent question, aren't, aren't you one of his disciples? Now, it's interesting to me, all four Gospels grab that detail. It was a servant girl. And I think that's significant. Peter, this guy who put so much stock in masculinity and boldness and action, this guy that, that was so strong and convinced of his strength, he built his identity on it. This guy, man, he's the kind of guy that, that, that man, he just... He, he really took pride in, in, in his strength and in his resolve and in his action. And, and, and his cowardice was exposed by the lowest and the weakest of the people around him. A servant girl comes and says, weren't you one of his disciples? And he didn't want the confrontation. He just wanted to kind of see how this thing was going to unfold. He didn't want to be sucked into the drama. He just he, he wanted to be on the outskirts and not brought in. And, and so this girl's a nuisance. And so he brushes her aside with a casual lie that in the moment, I don't think he's even really paying attention to. In the moment, he's, he's, just, he's just caught up in the drama and the chaos and the confusion, and he's off balance, and he's just like, nah, 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 nah. I didn't know. Right? Just brush her aside. Mark's gospel tells us that at that point, he moved away from the fire, um, in this sense, kind of pulling away from the light, wanting a little bit of, to hide a little bit, and, and, and the rooster crows first time which he didn't even notice. In that culture, in that time, roosters crowing, he just, it was noise, it, was, it happened, but again, nothing registered. He moved back to the fire. And, and another um, uh, servant is like, hey, I, I think I saw you, right? Peter kind of made a, a, a scene when he cut off Malchus's ear. Like, I think I saw you, right? I think, weren't, weren't you? And his response is even stronger. Man, I, I did not know, no. It's not me. I, man, I, I, am not, I am not with him. About an hour later, as he's warming himself by the fire, multiple people are starting to say, hey, man, we know you're a Galilean. You can't hide your accent, right? It's like somebody from Mississippi. You just can't hide that stuff, right? It just, it just comes out. The Galileans had a very distinct accent. The Galileans were the, they knew in that region, man, they were the followers of Jesus. They're like, you can't hide this, man. You're a Galilean. Weren't you with him? And at that point, in his frustration, his exhaustion, his despair, with a curse, I do not know him. The rooster crows a second time. Right as he finishes it, this time he hears it. And it all comes flooding back. 
it all comes flooding back. He was surprised in that moment. Not just of the betrayal of Jesus, but of the betrayal of his own heart. And he looks up, and we don't know whether he was looking through a door or a window, but he looks up, and Jesus looks at him in that moment. Their eyes lock. And there is a shared knowledge in that moment. There is an exposure of shame. There is a depth of betrayal. And it says, Peter went out and wept bitterly. And at this point, the bitterness of his weeping, I don't think is primarily about the betrayal of Jesus. I think the the weeping of bitterness comes from the revelation of the nature of his own heart. He just got a clearer image of himself than he ever wanted to get. And this guy who, who had been consumed with being masculine and strong and, and, and had despised weakness and probably had even in his own mind compared himself to the weaknesses of others. Like, like at least, and we know he did that because he did it with the disciples, right? I'm not like them. I'm the strong one. I'm the active one. I'm the bold one. That in that moment he was exposed, his greatest strength turned out to be his true weakness. And all of that righteousness, all of that sense of what made him who he was, was exposed as a fraud. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Take a look again at verses 61 and 62. You just want the weight of this to sit on this. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I don't know if you've had that moment yet. Where you've been exposed in your weakness, where your, your confidence in yourself, your, your hope was exposed. What you thought was your greatest strength turned out to be not as strong. That point of pride actually turns out to be a point of weakness. What you set your hope on didn't prove worthy of the hope you invested into it. And as a result, you were exposed in your shame. Vulnerable in your weakness. Unable to hide from your own eyes what you've been desperately trying to hide your whole life. If you haven't had that moment yet, you will. Everybody has a Peter moment. Some of us go back to it multiple times. But that moment in which your strength is exposed at weakness and what you trust lets you down and you have nowhere else to turn. When you come to the end of your strength, but you haven't come to the end of the task... And whatever it is that is in front of you demands more than you have to give. Whether it is your job or your career, personal development, a a personal battle, marriage, kids, you will find the end of your strength. And you will in that moment find that there is more task than energy, that, that it requires more than you can give. That's a hard spot to be. It's an impossible spot to be. We're going to leave Peter there (laughs) for now. We're going to come back on Friday. We're actually going to take a look at and and dig in a little bit to that look that Peter and Jesus shared because it is pregnant with meaning. I mean, there's a lot there. So this Friday night, we're going to dig into that look and and then Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday. We're, we're going to look at the resurrection through the eyes of Jesus. We're going we're to experience it through His eyes. But for now, let me ask you this. What can we take away from this? What, what can we learn from this experience? Well, there's a few things. First, 
Everything we hope to build or do in our own power is already doomed to failure. Everything we hope to build or do in our own power is already doomed to failure. You're like, Steve, you're not very encouraging. Right? This is like the Easter week. Aren't you supposed to be encouraging, right? Pastels and, and, and rabbits and eggs and happiness. and You guys, this isn't uh, the power of positive thinking, <laughs> but it's true. And the longer you live, the more you know it's true. There's a great betrayal at the heart of the human condition. We all experience it. We all have within us longings for justice and for joy, for love and significance, for security and meaning. But there is no ultimate satisfaction for those hungers. There is nothing that scratches that itch, there is nothing that comes in and satisfies it. We get small tastes. We get small hints. We, we, get, we get enough to pique our appetite, but, but in the end, every hope is disappointed. Every hope is not fully satisfied. There's no full expression in this world of what we long to have. There are shadows. There are moments. There are good things. But every story in the end Ends with sorrow. Here's the thing. A lot of us blame God for that betrayal. We feel like God set us up. God gave me these desires and then didn't give me the fulfillment of those desires. God, God let me down. I trusted God. I entrusted it to God. I, I tried to follow God. And, and yet it always ends with brokenness. You follow any story out long enough and it ends with sadness. We blame God. And there are some of you that are angry with God for this betrayal. You have resentment because you feel like you've been set up. You've been put in a situation that was a no-win situation because it was more than you could handle. It was more than you could do. There was nothing that you could actually do to succeed and win. But here's the thing. There is a betrayal at the heart of the human condition, but it's not God's betrayal of us. It's our betrayal of God. God created us to feast on the overflow of His goodness and, and, and the presence of His love. And our sin against God separated us from God and set us off on a path where we are determined to get from God's gifts what only God can give. And so we look to God's gifts and and we crave for them to feed our deepest needs. We look for our, our human systems to produce genuine justice, equity, and wholeness. We look to our human relationships to give us our deepest experiences of joy and of love. But man-sized gifts cannot satisfy a God-sized need. The gifts of God cannot replace God. And our determination to do our life apart from God, to get from God what only God can give in ways He won't give it, leaves us continually frustrated. And in the end, everything we build is fatally flawed from the point at which it is built. Everything we sow, we sow with the seeds of our own destruction. That's why there's no society that has ever thrived and and reached a point of genuine balance, equity, and justice. There's no social reform that has ever been enacted that has fully addressed the social needs that it was meant to address. There's no family that has existed that has not suffered the dysfunctions that come with competition instead of community, self-centered hearts. Everything we build is fatally flawed. Even if no one gets in our way, we get in our own. Nathaniel Hawthorne, a famous American author, made the observation that when the pilgrims first came to the new world, 
They were full of vision and hope and anticipation of creating a a new society free from the corruption and the excesses and the violence of the old world. They came to the new world to create a new thing. And the first two public institutions that they built were a cemetery and a jail. They could leave the corruption of England, but they could not leave the corruption of their own hearts. We carry within us the betrayal. And we sow the seeds of our own destruction. We don't want to believe it any more than Peter did. We don't want to see that. (laughs) Who wants to see that? We don't want to be the bad guy in our story. We want to be the hero. We want to be the protagonist. We want want the enemies to be out there, not in here. We don't want to believe that we're not good enough or strong enough or smart enough. We don't want to believe that our political platforms or our social or economic strategies or our life plans or our our marriages or or our our parenting strategies or or our professional plans for advancement, prosperity, that they're all laced with the betrayal of hope. The plans will fail, and if they don't, even if you get what you planned for, it will not give you what you hoped for. Even if you get everything that you wanted and are working for, it will not give you what you are hoping for because no earthly experience can feed your God-sized need for love and significance, for affirmation and for justice. Steve, seriously, it's Easter, man. Come on, lighten up. I get it. That's heavy, and that's hard. But here's the thing, you guys. There's no resurrection without death. There's no birth of a new hope without the death of the false hope. So the second point is this. As bad as this news is, it only makes the good news better. As bad as this news is, it only makes the good news better. Peter didn't appreciate or understand how great his sin was or how great his need was. He was filled with, he knew he needed Jesus, but, but it was really Jesus plus, right? Jesus plus his ability, Jesus plus his strength, Jesus plus his courage. He just didn't understand how great his need was. And as a result, he didn't understand how great a Savior Jesus was. See, when you realize just how helpless you are to solve the world's problems, when you understand just how helpless you are to solve your own problems, It makes you desperate in your helplessness. And that's the birthplace of real faith. People who struggle to pray often think that they struggle to pray because they don't have enough uh, self-discipline or self-control. I would pray more if I was just disciplined more. I got to just be focused. I got to just kind of, you know, white knuckle it kind of. Here's the thing. You know who prays? Desperate people pray. And that's not an act of self-control. That is an act of desperation. Prayer is the language of desperation. If you're having a hard time praying right now, you need to take that as a warning sign to your soul. That you are more like Peter than maybe you want to admit. You're confident in your own ability to manage your own affairs. You're confident in your own strength to handle your own problems. You're confident in your own intellect. You're confident in your own creativity. You're you're confident in your own strengths or what you perceive as your strengths. And like Peter, you will find that your strengths are not strong enough. Your intellect isn't smart enough. Your capacity isn't great enough. Desperate people pray. Prayer is the language of desperation. You know who's amazed at grace? People who feel their shame and in their shame feel the love of God. Not the people who understand theologically about grace. Not the people who have all the knowledge about grace. Not the people that have studied God. The people who know God and are experiencing God are amazed at grace. You know, one of the greatest lies our culture tells us is that God will not give you more than you can handle. You guys, it's all more than you can handle. You just don't know it. 
You live under the illusion of control and power, significance. We are foolish in our self-confidence. And like Peter, we're just as surprised when we fail. You know, Jesus, in John 15, told his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He wasn't exaggerating. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing, now go be fruitful. See, we want to produce the fruit. And we put our hope on the other side. So I want to accomplish this thing. And then when I accomplish this thing, I'll get what I hope for. And then when I get what I hope for, I'll actually experience what I want to experience. Joy, significance, power, justice. That's the exact opposite of the way God designed it. We're to find our joy, our love, our significance in our relationship with God. We are a branch rooted in a vine. It is the sap that runs from that relationship that produces the fruit. We're not supposed to work for it. It's the byproduct of being absolutely dependent on our source. The desperate fear of helplessness is only terrifying if you are absolutely determined to bear your own fruit. Your life plan, your kids' safety and success, your plan for social change, fear comes in when you think it's all on you. Desperation comes in when you realize you're not enough. Despair comes in when your faith in yourself is broken and your faith in God hasn't grown. Faith comes from resting in Him when we're helpless. When we realize we are the branch, He is the vine, and we are completely dependent on Him when the task is greater than our strength and we don't despair but instead trust. When we don't have the strength to take the next step, but we take it anyway, not because we have strength, but because we know He does. We rest in His love and in His love find a strength that is beyond our own. We can trust Him with the outcome, not just of our successes, but of our failures. That our best works, even when they fail colossally and splendidly, whether it's our marriage or our parenting or our jobs. We can trust Him with the outcome. It was never on you anyway. It was above your pay grade. You cannot be God. You cannot be independent of God. You cannot perform for God. You were designed to be dependent on God. And when you realize that there is an ever-present invitation to grace to once again be dependent. That's when the bad news becomes good news. That's when your helplessness becomes an invitation to experience a power beyond your own. A transforming presence that doesn't come from your performance but drives it. A comfort, a security, a significance, a promise of justice that is greater than anything you could ever produce. And it realigns your hope from this world and its limited promises and just the gifts of God to the presence of God himself. Finally, the only strength is weakness and the only maturity is humility. The only strength is weakness and the only maturity is is humility. The disciples thought they were secure because when they came into the city, man, the whole city was buzzing with excitement. (laughs) And they took the popularity of their movement to mean the security of their future, right? Their social agenda was adopted. Their their guy was elected. Everybody was like on board. And and when they watched into the city and they had heard the praise of men, they were like, man, we're unstoppable. Their confidence was in the wrong thing. When when, When Peter walked into that city, he was dependent on Jesus, but he was confident in his own strength. He was confident in his own boldness. His confidence was was in the wrong thing. The disciples mistook political and social influence for genuine progress in in the kingdom of God. Peter mistook his commitment for maturity. And as a result, they were disappointed to the point of despair. Here's the thing, you guys. Peter was most vulnerable. Peter was most weak when he thought he was most strong. 
And the exposure of his weakness was actually the birth of his strength. We despise our moments of weakness. We despise the exposure of our shame. But it's in those moments that often our deepest faith is born. Our genuine strength has started to be experienced because it's not ours, it's His. It's when we're pushed to a point of desperation, which, by the way, we have to be pushed into. (laughs) We don't voluntarily go to that place. When we're pushed into a point of desperation, it is there that we discover that He is a greater Savior because we've seen a greater need. And we push more deeply into our dependence and we find that He is more dependable than we thought. And out of that grows a boldness of faith that doesn't seem bold to us at all. It seems only reasonable. It seems only proper because what's in front of me is greater than what I have to bring to the table. I, have, I can't rely on myself. But he is absolutely reliable and dependable. You know, it's fun. I like hanging out with new believers. New believers are a kick because, man, when they, when they believe in Jesus, they are so excited about the gospel, and it's just infectious. You know what I'm saying? Like, it is fun. Like, they're digging into the Word, and they're like, did you know the Bible says this? I'm like, yeah, I, I did know that. Well, aren't you, like, excited about it? Well, I'm more excited now. You know, it's kind of infectious. I'm really glad you're sharing that with me. And, 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 and yet with that enthusiasm often comes a, an arrogance that they just don't see. It's like, man, I haven't sinned in a week really? That's good, man. And, and subtly what often happens in a, in a new believer's mind is, is they're looking around going, man, why are these old people such dead logs? This stuff's exciting. Why are they like just like, you just act like it's normal stuff. This is incredible, right? And so they start thinking, if you just get out of my way, I could change the world, right? That's arrogance. And, and that arrogance has to be tempered by a deeper experience of grace, but, but I love it. It's enthusiastic. It is, it is a wonderful mess. But it's not just new believers who struggle with this. It's also old believers. There's a different kind of arrogance that comes masked as maturity. And it's actually much more deadly. It's the kind of arrogance that stops being amazed at grace. It is... Somebody who believes they're mature because they've got their act together. They've got this religious thing down. They feel in control. That's deadly. That's not dependence. It's pride. And as a result, they talk a lot about God, but they know less and less of God. They talk a lot about grace, but they experience it less and less. They can give you good theological answers. But they're theological answers that are detached and disconnected from their heart. You guys, spiritual maturity is dependence. Spiritual maturity is humility. It is those that are most aware of their need that are most dependent on their Savior. That's maturity. We make a a grave mistake when we mistake experience, knowledge, and so-called life wisdom for genuine spiritual maturity. The strongest believers are the ones that are most aware of their need and the most, most joyfully dependent on Jesus. So here's the thing, you guys. It's when you're most aware of your need that you are probably poised for your greatest growth in faith. It's when you're most aware of your weakness that you will most grow in your experience of grace. See, Peter had a bad night. But he was only seeing what Jesus saw all along. And this, this night, as we're going to see as we continue to move forward, was a gift to him that would free him into his true strength. That would free him from the, the weakness and the brittleness of his pride into the genuine freedom and delight of dependent humility. 
Don't despise God's hard gifts because they often bring the greatest treasures. All right. I'm going to uh, wrap us up here for this morning. Uh, invite you back Friday night as we continue to dig in to Good Friday and, of course, Easter Sunday next Sunday as we look at the resurrection. Let me pray for us. We're going to move into a time of reflection. Um, allow God to uh, speak to your heart, and then we're going to share communion in a moment. Father, we, we thank you that you are a God of grace, that you, man, you don't, you hate our sin, but you don't despise our weakness. You hate our arrogance, but you don't expose it for the purpose of mocking us or destroying us. Or, man, you are a God of grace. You show us the things we don't want to see so that we can grow in ways we cannot grow. You bless us with hard gifts, like death. The death of dreams, sometimes the death of relationships. And Lord, sometimes it's not you causing, it's the enemy, just like the enemy brought this suffering into Peter's life. But even if the enemy brings it, you use it. Lord, I pray for my friends, and I pray for my own heart. that we wouldn't have to suffer in the same way Peter suffered to learn the lesson Peter learned. That we might, like the wise, see and be instructed. That we might push into dependency. That we might admit our limitations. That we might stop pretending and performing. That we might crave and even ask for you to show us the things about our own hearts that we don't want to see that in seeing them, we might be freed to more fully, humbly, dependently delight in Jesus. That we might understand our desperate need and in that desperate need to understand how great a Savior. Lord, meet us and do what only you can do. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.